Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. Since the uh, 17th century, the great seal of the Evangelical Reformed Church of Germany, that's our our Presbyterian sister church in Germany, their great seal shows a small sailing ship tossed on stormy waves. The inscription, which I'll translate for you, reads, God's church, persecuted, scattered, God has given her comfort. The church as a ship in the storm. Sometimes, though, even that picture can seem a little too mild, can't it? Maybe you remember that blockbuster movie, I don't know, maybe it was 20 years ago or so, The Perfect Storm. Many of you saw that. New England fishermen in a worn-out trawler faced the fury of a perfect storm as three separate squall lines converge upon them in the North Atlantic. They never returned to harbor. It's a true story. and We don't really know quite what happened, but anyone who saw that movie can never forget that scene of the doomed trawler chugging its way almost straight up the face of a hundred-foot storm surge. Now that is the church in radical transition. (laughs) At least that's the way it feels. That's the way it feels. Now churches don't like change. You may have noticed that through the years. Churches don't like change. You know, pastor leaves, staff reshuffles, familiar programming gets preempted by new ideas, and you're wondering who's going to lead us now, and what direction are they going to lead us in? What will the future hold for us? Will I even like the new pastor? Even worse, will the new pastor like me? Will I approve of the changes, or will I lose, we might say, lose my church, the place where I feel accepted and comfortable. That's what, this is what transitional pastors call the gray zone, the gray zone. It's the familiar black and white, cut and dried ways of doing things no longer apply, and we find ourselves adrift in a dark and uncertain and sometimes even stormy place. The gray zone. Now, when we land in the gray zone, it hits us a lot closer to home than we commonly anticipate. And it triggers unexpected emotions like like grief, anxiety, even anger. Now, that's a biological thing. Change sounds an alarm in our brain and we automatically kick into survival mode, meaning we'll react in one or more of three ways, pain, anger, or anxiety, and it's, oh, heaven help us, our ship is sinking. And we, some might say, oh, man the lifeboats, and others will say, save your, grab a life ring and save yourself. And then the good Presbyterians will say, oh my goodness, let's form a committee. (laughs) 
Let me give you an example of what the gray zone can look like. After 17 years of service, a beloved pastor died quite suddenly. As their transitional pastor coming in a couple months later, I met with their pastor search committee. They had immediately, by the way, I mean, the casket was barely in the ground before they had a congregational meeting to elect a new pastor search committee. Like that. And so I met with the pastor search committee and I come in, I mean, this is part of my job, right? And the chairman was incensed that I was there. He reprimanded me that I had no business crashing that meeting and influencing their search process. Well, I had to firmly explain that I had every reason for being there in that meeting. Insofar, part of my responsibility is guiding them through the process. Now, I'm not involved when they're doing interviews or discussing actual candidates, but I walk them through the process. And I, I had to remind him that pastors are not simply cogs in a machine. We're not standardized like machine parts. And one size does not fit all. Losing a pastor instead is like losing a spouse. You know? Finding a new one is more like dating. You know? You don't just go on com online on your computer and sign up for, for pastorharmony.com. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You don't grab the first one you, that, has, that, that, that breathes and walks and talks while you're on the rebound. You don't want to be in a hurry. You want to take your time and look and choose wisely. So I had come to ask that committee to suspend their search for five months. Not to stop entirely, just wait five months because the congregation needed a little bit more time to grieve and to heal from their loss. Anyone who's lost a spouse knows you're not ready to date the next day. And if you are, we need to have a serious conversation. See me after the service, okay? <laughs> no, it's not like that. Churches are the same way. Instead, the chairman fumed and he said, and I'm quoting him, this congregation elected us to this committee, and we have a responsibility to carry out our duty without delay. It is our obligation to them to get a real pastor in here as fast as we can. <laughs> Incidentally, I, I guess that means there now stands before you today an imaginary pastor, okay? <laughs> But, but I like being here, so let's all continue imagining together, okay?
that committee, that committee decided to take a hiatus after all for two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. Now that committee chair, he appealed to duty and responsibility and obligation, all these wonderful words, but what really drove him was nothing other than plain old anxiety. I think you can see it, that's just anxiety. It was fear. And he became angry with me, or with me because anxiety always comes with anger. They're related, even the words are related. Being without a real pastor scared him silly, and he was desperate to find a replacement as soon as possible so he could take a deep breath and relax at last. Oh, everything's good again, we've got a pastor in here. Now that is what life looks like in the gray zone. Now you know another story about a storm-tossed boat. This one's in the Gospels. In Mark chapter four, starting at verse 35. I invite you to turn there or follow along on the screen. Mark 4:35. Now on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he woke up and rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? May God bless to us this reading of his word, him be glory. Amen. The early church fathers, and by the way, all the way down to modern preachers today, tend to read this like an allegory. You know, you and I are the disciples, the church is the boat, the storm is the turmoil of the devil, the waves are the trials and persecutions of the world. And you and I are frightened and threatened by the storms of life, but only need to cry to Jesus and he'll hear and save us. Now, Mark's story really isn't an allegory, but there is a lot of truth in this way of looking at it. However, there's so much more in the details. And I want to look at some of the details. Now, like all miracle stories in the Bible, the event by itself does not tell us what it means. 
Miracles do not so much bring people to faith in Jesus as they confront us instead with a riddle to be answered. I mean, like here, who is this that wind and sea obey him? Or by what authority do you do these things? Is this your son? How is it he can see? Who healed you? And so on. It's how we answer those questions that explain and make sense of the miracles. That's the way it is in the New Testament. That's the way it is today in your life and mine. So if we want to understand what Mark wants to tell us, we need to take a closer look at what Jesus and the disciples say. I want you to notice, this is very important, Jesus sets the whole episode in motion when he tells his disciples, let's cross to the other side. Let's cross to the other side of the sea. It's an unusual order. Fishing boats stayed in close to the shore where the fishing was better and the nets could reach bottom. Also, these fishing boats are not really designed to handle the chop of an open sea, especially if they're carrying 13 people. 13 people, that's more than a ton of weight. And add to that the fact that this side of the sea was Jewish territory, while that side of the sea was Gentile territory, and every good Jew knew that those Gentiles had cooties. <laughs> so you didn't go over into that territory unless you had to. Good Jews didn't cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, to landlubbers like the Jews, the open sea was a place of monsters and unpredictable danger. It was chaos, the abyss. It was the haunt of demons. You get in a storm, in a small boat out on the open sea, and I guarantee you will feel the same way. A crisis, crisis situations make us see how fragile our lives are. Now, in creation, we read that God has to tame the sea and force order upon it. He has to command it and make it recede to allow dry land to appear. So while the disciples may be fishermen who are used to sailing boats, they're never comfortable really beyond the shallows out there on the open water. But Jesus says, cross. Do you see what that means? It means it is no accident that the disciples find themselves out on the open sea in the center of the storm. Jesus sent them there. He put them there. You see, crisis situations in your life and in the life of a church are 
are not only inevitable, you know, an unavoidable part of human life in this oh-so-imperfect fallen world. No, they are intentional. They are intentional. Jesus sends you into critical, even life or death, uh, situations and circumstances where you cannot save yourself. He sends you into the gray zone. You see, miracles will not happen where there is no risk. Salvation cannot be experienced where there is no danger to be saved from. God will not make a way until there is no other way out. Faith means nothing until you are in a hopeless situation. Jesus did not come to give you ideal living conditions, but rather he came to give you a restored relationship with God. He died so that the sin barrier between you and God can be taken away and you can have that relationship. But that relationship happens when you must turn to Him and rely upon Him alone. That's when the relationship happens. So Jesus sends the disciples he sends this church, he sends us personally, you personally, <clears throat> to a place where you must trust him, where you must depend upon Jesus, where you have no hope except him. So the storm arises, the wind whips, the waves wash over the gunnels of the overloaded fisher. Jesus clearly is not worried. He is asleep in the stern until the disciples awaken him. And what they now say is revealing. Let me begin with what they do not say. They do not say, Jesus, there's a storm. They don't say, Jesus, what must we do? They don't say, Jesus, could you hope, hold this end of a rope? They don't say, Jesus, a little help here. Instead, they fuss at him. Teacher, don't you even care if we drown? How'd you like to be awakened out of a deep sleep with that? <laughs> Plunged into a crisis, the disciples' first reaction is fear. And fear leads to self-pity. And self-pity leads to anger. They don't just question Him, they challenge Jesus. You don't care about any of us. You don't love us. If you loved us, we wouldn't be in this position. If you loved us, you would have fixed this already. Jesus 
Rather than saying, oh, forget you guys, let them get blasted with lightning and then get it, step out of the boat and walk home on the water, start over the next morning. No, he doesn't do that. That, by the way, is grace. If you don't know what grace is, that's grace. But Jesus turns it around on them and says, guys, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith in God? Do they think that the Heavenly Father would really let Jesus and His disciples drown? That it would all be for nothing? Well, fortunately for them and for all of us, Jesus understands those human emotions. He doesn't take their anger seriously except insofar as it exposes their fear. And he asks, where's their faith? Where's their faith? Now, you need to notice they don't have any doubt. They're not expressing doubts. They have a lousy attitude. Uh, but when the disciples face a crisis they can't handle, they know they should turn to Jesus. They know that already. Doubt wouldn't even bother to do that. Doubt wouldn't bother to wake Jesus because what could he do about it anyway? The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith, the absence of faith, is fear. It's fear. So Jesus sends you into the gray zone and expects you to face it with confidence. With the confidence that the Lord who sent you into the squall can bring you safely through it. That you are where you are, wherever you are. You're there for a reason. It's intentional. There's a purpose, and the Lord can and will work things out for good. He's trying to accomplish something through you and the circumstances he has you in. And the disciples, they fail the test, you know, because they, they see only the storm, not the God who controls it. So, where are you looking? Despite their fear and lack of faith, despite their misplaced anger and their sheer panic, Jesus rouses and quiets the wind and seas with a word. We're not even told he has to raise his voice. It's like he gets up, he looks, and there's this roar and crash, and, and he says, shh. That's grace. Though the disciples don't believe it. Though the disciples don't deserve it. Jesus saves them anyway. 
And now the disciples, who were just wondering if Jesus even cared about them, now they can only wonder, oh my goodness, who is this that wind and sea obey and obey him? Now at this, by the way, we can only shake our heads. I mean, they've been watching people heal. They've been watching the dead raised. I mean, what's it going to take? Multitudes fed. Guys, what's it going to take? If you don't expect Jesus is going to save you, why wake him up in the first place? You know? But isn't that typical of us all? How often have you prayed for something? How often have you prayed for God's help? And then... When the Lord actually does something, you're surprised and amazed. Have you still no faith? Where is your confidence? Where is your trust in the God who hears your prayers? And even before you pray, he's planning his answer. He's planning his solution already. The Gospel writer, Mark, wants us to see that this is ultimately a story about who Jesus is. That's what he wants to emphasize. That every time Jesus answers a prayer, every time Jesus does something, he reveals something about himself, about who he is, and what he's capable of. Something you can apply to your own life and your own faith in Jesus. But Jesus also revealed something of what he expects of you and me as we sail into that gray zone. While we're there waiting and praying for that miracle. Compare the disciples in this story to another tale of a storm at sea. If you turn with me quickly to to the book of Acts, chapter 27. I'd say I'm sure all of you know this story and know it by heart, but nobody ever learns this one by heart. It's long. And I'm just going to read a section of it, starting at verse 13. Acts 27, starting at verse 13. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought, this is the ship's crew and the soldiers accompanying Paul, they thought they could achieve their purpose, so they weighed anchor and began to sail past Crete close to the shore. But soon a violent wind called North, Northeaster rushed down from Crete, and since the ship was caught and could not be turned head on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. By running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After hoisting it up, they took measures to undergird the ship, and then fearing that they would run on the Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and so were driven. 
We were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day, they began to throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, with their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among, they probably weren't interested in food for a long time, by the way. <clears throat> but Paul then stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and thereby avoided this damage and loss. But I urge you now to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For last night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before the emperor and indeed God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we will have to run aground on some island. Similar dire situation. But what a difference a little bit of faith makes. As even the hardened sailors panic, Paul remains calm and confident. Not because of Paul, but because of the God Paul worships. He has talked with the Lord, and has, he has been assured that ultimately they will all be okay. The cargo may be sacrificed, the ship may break up, but not one life will be lost, and that's what happens. Paul sails into the gray zone, but he knows Jesus, only Jesus, really is in control of every fate and he can face whatever comes with confident faith. Now, Jesus never promises you smooth sailing. There will be storms and crises. Sometimes they seem to converge on you from several different directions all at one time. Some days you're gonna feel like an old and underpowered trawler crawling up a sheer wall of water. But Jesus, sent you there. And he's the master of all circumstances. There's a purpose. The Lord challenges you and me to look beyond our immediate circumstances to him who determines all of our circumstances. Whether in your church or in your life, you're gonna find yourself from time to time in the gray zone. If you haven't yet, I have news for you. Whether that's good news or bad news is all going to depend on your perspective and your faith. But you're going to end up in the gray zone, unsure of your direction, maybe even fearful for your very survival. Beware of fear and anger and pain. Self-pity is not your friend. 
It doesn't offer any solutions. It only offers failure. Rest assured that Jesus Christ does love you. He does care about you. And he's looking out for you, no matter how things might appear. He will direct you into that gray zone again and again. And again, if need be until you relax. And while you might not be comfortable there, at least you'll find, you'll learn and grow how to be peaceful in the gray zone. You see, Jesus has to bring you to a point where you cannot save yourself, where you have to trust Him. That is saving faith. That's what it means. And then don't be too surprised when a miracle happens. As I say, when God rears back and wangs out a miracle for you. For those who are not from the South, that's a Southernism. That when God does something remarkable on your behalf. So whenever you get that sinking feeling, it only means your lifeguard is on the way. At the end, I want to just toss in a little historical note, which has, I don't know if it has a whole lot to do with the point of my sermon. Maybe it does, because we're talking about God's plans and purposes that uh, down in the corner, yes, that little ship sailing on the ocean, this great seal, the symbol and seal of the Evangelical Reformed Church of Germany, in some ways for us has a doubled significance. Not only the church that is afloat in the storm-tossed sea, but is protected by God. But even more this, The Evangelical Reformed Church of Germany, particularly through the, uh, what they called the Mutterkirk, the mother church in Emden, provided untold financial resources to help Protestant refugees, to get them out of danger into safety, to help them uh, move, to help refugees find a new place to get started, where they could have at least some religious freedom. And there was a a group of of, uh, Protestant refugees who found themselves in in Holland, in Rotterdam, and they didn't know, they knew they could not go back to England, they could not go to Scotland uh, with the political turmoil at the time, and they decided maybe we ought to migrate to this new world we've been hearing about, but they had no way to pay for their passage. And so the Evangelical Reformed Church of Germany heard about their plight. And the Motokark in Emden raised the money to pay for their passage. There, they were simply called Flüchtlinge, 
refugees. We call them pilgrims. As the band members come forward and our prayer ministers come forward for a, a few minutes here, let's pray. Lord, when we're in turmoil, you, you are enthroned above the turmoil. You're not caught up in the middle of it. You're not blinded by the wind or the rain or the storms or the lightning. You're greater than all of that. And you command it all with a word. So Lord, guide us into and through the storms so we can learn to know you and trust in you. If any are here in, are in great personal straits, in dire straits, meet them where they are. And in your grace, Lord, kindle within them a fresh spark of faith that they can face things with peace and confidence in you. And may in all the circumstances we face, whatever they may be, whatever the storms that may come, let us give you the glory and praise because you are working out a wondrous purpose, a marvelous plan to give us and this church a future and a hope. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.